Is media freedom around the world in decline? Over the next couple of episodes, I'm going to be exploring the different threats facing media organizations and journalists today across the globe. The world has changed so dramatically, specifically if we look at the information ecosystem, that also the way media is threatened has changed. And I'll also be looking at who's trying to counter these threats, how and why. In this episode, we examine a country where journalists continue to operate under the harshest of circumstances, Mexico, where journalists are murdered and the perpetrators enjoy impunity. Every time when a journalist is killed, we live again the same sensations of fear, anxiety, sadness, anger. We'll also look at how the internet has become one of the most powerful tools used to censor and gag the media. I'm Harry Locke, and from the Public Media Alliance, this is Media Uncovered. It is a human right, the right to freedom of expression and access information. And it is a human right because it is considered vital for our lives. Silvia Chocarro is the global head of protection for Article 19. They're a civil society organization which promotes the right to freedom of opinion and expression. Journalists and the media industry, by transferring information and news to audiences, are integral in upholding this right. But in recent years, according to an Article 19 report, the media freedom climate, and indeed the entire concept of freedom of expression, has been under attack. We see that 80% of the population live with less freedom of expression than a decade ago. So we see that it is deteriorating. Only 15% of the population lives in what we define open countries. And on the opposite side, 35% of the population lives in a country in crisis in relation to the right to freedom of expression. But why has this happened? When the tools for journalists to access information have never been greater, why has freedom of expression and media freedom deteriorated? I do not have a magic recipe for this, but one of the issues, of course, that we have seen recently is that the health of liberal democracies is not great. In the last 10 years, we have seen the rise of authoritarianism, autocracy. In those types of regimes, freedom of expression is the first right that authoritarian leaders attack to undermine democracy because the battle for power is controlling the narrative. So for them, of course, it's very important to control the right to freedom of expression. So what tools do governments now have at their disposal when it comes to controlling, censoring and gagging the media? The threats to media freedom and to journalists manifest in very, very different ways. In the past, it was very much about physical attacks, threats to journalists or to media, state control of media. But the world has changed so dramatically, specifically if we look at the information ecosystem. There was not even Twitter, right, or Facebook. And now we live through those social media. So there has been so many changes in the information ecosystem that also the way media is threatened has changed. We'll come back to exactly what these new threats are, which Sylvia's alluding to there in a bit. But firstly, I want to examine how these old threats, namely the threats to physical safety, are manifesting and impacting journalists today. I am Marcela Turati. I am a Mexican journalist. I have been involved in freedom of speech activities since 12 years ago. 
in Mexico is like it's really it's really frustrating because we have the best uh, mechanisms we have the special prosecutors office we have laws dedicated to freedom of speech to protect journalists but we have seen that every time is more sophisticated all these legal and all these institutions, but the final input is the same. We have many, many more journalists killed, no? So it's like nothing is working. There is not political will. Mexico is one of the most deadly countries in the world for journalists. 15 journalists have been killed there already this year. It's an alarming continuation of a trend we've seen over the past two decades. We have almost 150 journalists killed since 2000 and more than 26 journalists disappear. That they are never counted with the other ones. But this year we felt that it was like a deja vu from the worst, worst years of the drug war period. Every time when a journalist is killed in Mexico, we live again the same sensations of fear, anxiety, sadness, anger that we feel in other years. No? And we don't see a better horizon. We cannot see that something will change the next years or this year. We see that the people in Mexico look this as normal and it's normalized the killing of journalists. Many NGOs said Mexico has more journalists killed than Ukraine and before we have more than Syria. I imagine every, you know, every killing will have its own story and its own background, particularly around what that journalist has been looking into, what they're investigating and what the motive was behind that. But I mean, are you able to paint a picture as to why is it? Is there variation? Yes, the main motivation is the impunity, right? The people who want to silence a journalist, they know that they will not pay anything because the government or the prosecutor office will never investigate. But we have not the same pattern in all the killings, but we know that the journalists who are most on risk live outside Mexico City. Also, they are investigating many of them, the police. There are journalists who cover politics especially those who expose corruption or some of other exposed narcopolitics. You never know who is the perpetrator, who, who is behind these crimes. First, because the government never investigate. And second, because everything is mixed. And sometimes they capture and then present to the press uh, one of the hitmen, the sicarios, and they say that they made justice, but we don't know what was the motivation behind these killings. And so it's really difficult to know what is happening. In Article 19, 
information, we know that half of the threats against journalists come from politicians, from public servants. So it's not true that the organized crime is the, the main perpetrator. For example, I have a friend who was kidnapped by Losetas cartel, and he was told when he was released that this uh, kidnap was because his articles about the corruption of the mayor bother the, the mayor, no? So many times we see this mix. At, at a national level, is, is it something that the the government or the, or the president is aware of and is wanting to improve? There is not political will that really, really investigate these killings or the threats. And we have many journalists who have to leave their homes or their estates because the unique response of the state is to replace these people or these journalists. And the problem is that these journalists are living like beggars. They are not longer investigating because they don't have money, they don't have the conditions to continue their work. So the unique response of the government is to put you in the mechanisms to protect journalists, but they don't investigate. They don't stop the people who want to silence or they don't put them in jail or they don't ask these people to stop treating journalists on a personal level, and I mean, amongst the, the journalistic community in Mexico, I mean, how does the current situation make you feel when you go about doing your job? I mean, are you, are you constantly in fear whenever you write a story? Does it stop you writing some stories? Do you self-censor? I think the majority of Mexican journalists, we think twice or many times if we can publish something, if we can put our names in the bylines, if it is dangerous. But it's really, really difficult to know because sometimes you are covering something about environment and then you realize when you are there that it's an easy article and you realize that behind of this corruption there is a politician who have links with uh, organized crime gang. And then you receive a threat or sometimes you are covering something about it. I don't know. Uh, for example, I have a friend, a journalist who covers sports, and he was in a children league of baseball. And then one man with a gun come and sit with him. And he said, you have to write about this kid. And he pointed one kid. He's the son of my boss. No? So he was threatened. So in Mexico, you never know what kind of topic will put you on danger because it's like a quicksand and you are walking and then you realize that you are in danger. In my career, I have to raise my name. I have to look for another journalist many times with foreign correspondents. 
and give them the information that I have, that I collect because I cannot publish. Sometimes we have to do in a collective way, many newsrooms together. Sometimes you have to wait. You have many information and sometimes you cannot publish this information because you know that it's not a right monument and that you can be in danger and receive some threats. And and sometimes you, <laughs> you are so tired that you publish no? because you are tired also because you say, okay, this is my whole life. I am always facing this. So what's the difference to publish or not? And that it kind of attitude put you on risk also. Have you felt like that? Have you been in that position? Yes, I, I have been burned out because it has been many, many years covering violence. My main topic is the victims of the violence, no? And I cover the disappearances of people, enforced disappearances. So every week, every day, sometimes I am interviewing people who suffer really big traumatic things. If you cover these stories, you will always, as the families who are searching and who collect data, and sometimes they discover that behind this there is a politician or a military. So many times you are on risk with them because you know this information, no? and so they, they share with you this information. You accumulate all these kind of impacts. And, and I don't know, I think some years ago, I felt like burnout. And I have to leave. I have to leave the country. When I return, I start like thinking many with other colleagues, how we can prevent this. We need psycho-emotional security. We need to self-care. We have to do different things because I think that many of our or some of our best investigative journalists have been killed because dealing with this daily makes you normalize this violence or normalize these threats. It should never be the case that we become used to the killing of journalists or that it is ever normalized. Reporters, members of the media should never pay with their lives for doing their job. Every year, November 2nd marks the International Day to End Impunity for Crimes Against Journalists. It's a way of recognising the enormous threats facing journalists and how impunity emboldens the perpetrators and has a chilling effect on society. But it also isn't just physical violence which journalists are subjected to. They're also vulnerable to new threats. And in many countries, these threats are presented from the state itself as Judy King, the editorial director of BBC Monitoring, explains. For example, in recent weeks, we've reported on a number of media crackdowns from around the world, really. For example, I mean, of course, we're looking closely at Russia at the moment, and the media environment there has changed dramatically since the invasion of Ukraine in February. And just recently, a few weeks ago, Russia revoked the operating licenses of the independent Novia Gazeta newspaper. In addition to that... For example, the Central African Republic, the Minister of Communications there, threatened to close the prominent Radio Ndeke Luka station unless it halted coverage of a contentious constitutional review. 
Also in Egypt, the media regulator there has said it will require streaming platforms to adhere to what it describes societal values and traditions or face necessary measures. So this really is, you know, sort of we see examples of, of these media crackdowns really around the world. What's clear is that both state and non-state actors now have an entire toolkit of ways to censor, restrict and gag the media. Let's return to Silvia Chocaro from Article 19. So, for example, if we look at Internet, you have first surveillance by states. Journalists are doing their job through Internet all the time, every day. (laughs) And the states are using surveillance tools to look at what the journalists are doing and to control what they are doing. Also, for example, the internet has brought online harassment and abuse. And this has been manifest in a very particular way, for example, against women journalists in particular. And it's something that it's very important to address because something that we need to realize is that there is nothing virtual about online harassment and abuse. It is real. It has an impact in the life of people. It has a physical impact. And actually, many times, online harassment and abuse translate into physical attacks. But then you have other trends that were less common in the past. For example, legal harassment against journalists. Legal harassment would be the use, misuse, or abuse of legislation to silence journalists. The characteristic of legal harassment is that in many cases, whoever is bringing you to the court, They do not expect even to win the case. What they are doing is putting the pressure on on journalists and media outlets to a legal proceeding. That creates a huge pressure, an economic pressure, a psychological pressure on journalists and media that might have as a consequence that next time you, your colleagues, might think twice before publishing something. And you also have disinformation and smear campaigns against media and journalists that is also having a huge impact on the way they do their work. And finally, although this one is not new, (laughs) is the capture of media, the capture by the state or the capture by private companies in the sense of they try to capture, or let's say, for example, buy newspapers, buy televisions, buy radios to actually control the narrative. Do you think because of the, I think the internet has also in many ways allowed information in some respects to become more accessible, but do you think it has also raised the stakes for media freedom and actually allowed states and as well as non-state actors to be able to censor and gag the media and and attack individual journalists or or media organisations more easily? That, I think, is certainly true. But at the same time that I say this, I want also to make clear the other side of the coin. Internet has brought amazing things to the society. We all know how incredibly useful it is to have access to Internet. And Internet has also provided an immense space for media plurality and for media diversity. Many of the most important media outlets today, independent media that are doing investigative journalism, exist because internet exists, because they do not exist in another type of platform. 
As Sylvia mentions, the internet is a powerful tool. It's given journalists so much when it comes to both accessing and disseminating information. For both public service and public interest media, it has allowed them to access new audiences. But it has now also become a weapon wielded against journalists. And in many countries, that weapon is being wielded by states. This subject is explored yearly by the civil society organisation Freedom House in their annual Freedom on the Net report. Jessica White is their senior research analyst for media and democracy. Freedom on the Net has been running for 12 consecutive years and it covers a range of issues, whether that's digital divides, access to information, censorship, privacy, diversity of, of the online environment. Year upon year, the research has been finding that the internet is increasingly being used as a tool to crack down on human rights and access to information. So we look at 70 countries, which cover about 90% of the world's internet users. So three quarters of the world's internet users now live in countries where people are punished for exercising their right to basic uh, freedom of expression online. And we're finding that more governments around the world are restricting what people can see and share online. So internet censorship is both, I guess, increasing in scale and sophistication. And that's not just through traditional forms of censorship that you might think of in terms of limiting information online, but we're also seeing efforts to floods the information landscape online with things like disinformation and propaganda. I like the term that has been coined already, sort of describes the situation as censorship through noise. China, they really engage in coordinated online harassment and disinformation campaigns. So they use tactics like cyberbullying by pro-communist party trolls and fake accounts to really amplify social media posts that are state-linked. So these disinformation campaigns can be really covert and inflicted, not just to control the narrative within specific countries, but also to try and influence narratives across borders or even undermine, as we have seen, elections or democratic institutions in other countries or democratic countries. So what's the overall picture in 2022? The internet is being increasingly censored in terms of the scale and sophistication of the methods used. Just in terms of more crude methods, of course, there are different legal, technical, administrative ways that you might censor the internet. But just to give you an example of the scale, in at least 40 countries over the past year, websites hosting social, political or religious content was blocked. That's out of 70 countries total that the report looks at. And in another 21 countries, they found that access to social media and comms platforms was blocked. So really affecting how people access news and information within their countries, but also at the very basic level, communicate with each other. But one of the big findings within our report is that more governments are actually taking proactive steps to fragment the internet. So essentially carving up the global internet to more easily censor critical information, spread different information or silence critics. So whether that's about restricting news and information across borders or controlling in the, in the most crudest of ways the actual technical infrastructure of the internet, 
more and more people are running the risk of having a completely different experience of the internet altogether and being digitally isolated from independent information and foreign news sites. So there's a real risk of the global free and open internet as we know it of becoming more carved up and more fragmented. And it isn't just the usual suspects who are limiting internet freedom. The report puts countries into three categories, free, partly free and not free. But countries from across all three categories are culpable of inhibiting internet freedom, albeit to vastly different extents. So you might see not free countries employing a whole arsenal of techniques. And in the case of Russia, uh, we've seen recently when they illegally invaded Ukraine, they blocked over 5,000 websites. They referred to the war as a special military operation and told media to refer to it as that, went after dissenters with a new law with up to 15 years in prison for knowingly spreading false information and a foreign agents law, which has essentially cast uh, news outlets as enemies of the people and forced them into exile or forced them into closure. Um, so those are the more extreme cases. But you might also see partly free or free countries where they might have actually legitimate concerns uh, for addressing issues like disinformation or cybercrime. But those can also result in collateral forms of censorship. So we might also see essentially free countries almost carelessly fragmenting the Internet, carving it up to try to address issues like disinformation and cybercrimes but the collateral damage might also be significant. When autocracies are put under pressure, or when the regime's control becomes threatened, it is independent media which suffers. Take a look at the recent events in Iran, where following the death of Masa Amini, large-scale protests have erupted across the country. How has the state responded? Judy King from BBC Monitoring explains what they're seeing. The Iranian establishment uses state-run media to control narratives and support its version of events. State TV there reports on the protests and paints them as riots that damage um, Iran's security. And really the state media toes the Islamic Republic's line through constantly echoing the same sentiments and writing reports to back up official claims and therefore attacking critics. And yeah, journalism is really is a precarious profession in Iran. And the US-based Committee to Protect Journalists says, 46 journalists and bloggers have been arrested since the start of the protests last month. So this is something we've got a close watch on at the moment. And do you see the internet being used as a particular tool there as well in terms of control and, and censorship? Absolutely. And, and there has been re- reports of widespread disruption to the mobile internet in particular um, there across Iran um, since the start of the protests. Netblocks is, is a, a watchdog organisation that monitors cybersecurity. And, and according to them, Iran is experiencing its most severe internet restrictions since the November 2019 protests. And in terms of the way that, that Iran controls and and restricts the internet and and access to the internet is that something that you see elsewhere in other countries or or, or other regions yeah it's it's really quite a complex picture actually um in terms of shutting down the internet and and doing that completely in any country is extremely difficult but but we do see um, many examples of where states have attempted either a partial shutdown or localized shutdown 
to contain messages that they don't want to get out or that are, are uncomfortable for them. And a report from earlier this year, the organisation Access Now says that in 2021, India actually was the worst offender and shut down the internet at least 106 times. Um, and the same report also mentions Myanmar, Sudan and Iran as states that have tried to close down the internet at certain times. So where does this all leave us? An internet which provides access to information for many, now an object of restricting that access. Is it utopian to think that there is somewhere a happy medium, a free internet accessible to all, free of mis- and disinformation, free of abuse and harassment, free of government surveillance and control? Silvia Chocarro. I think always we have to walk through the utopia, right? If we don't think that utopia is possible, we wouldn't keep walking. I'm assuming there will always be challenges, but I think we can certainly go to a space in which the challenges can be minimized by a lot. I think what happened too is that the technology and the internet has gone first and we are trying to keep up behind. So at some point, I hope that's going to change and we will be able to go first and make sure that internet is built with a human rights approach. That is the goal. And I think it's going to be achieved. In this episode, we've analysed what threats there are to media freedom. They are varied. They are advanced and sophisticated. They are physical and digital. They come from both state and non-state actors. And they are all difficult to undo. On the next episode, we'll tackle that very issue. What is being done about it? We'll hear again from Silvia Chocarro and Jessica White. We'll assess the global state-level initiatives working to prioritise media freedom. We'll look at what civil society organisations can do and are doing. And we'll also ask whether public service media organisations have a role to play. Thanks to my guests, Silvio Chocaro, Marcella Turati, Jessica White and Judy King. Thanks also to Lucas Thompson, Rachel Still and Tom Brazier for the music. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast and share with friends and colleagues. This episode is released to coincide with the UN's International Day to End Impunity for Crimes Against Journalists. You can find out more about that on the UN's website. For more information about media freedom and public media, you can head to our website, www.publicmediaalliance.org, or you can follow us on social media, or you can sign up to our newsletter where we monitor and raise awareness of all of these issues. Thanks for listening. Thank you.